Velkommen til denne første Genau Talk podcast. Mit navn er Henrik Johanning. Jeg er CEO for Genau More. I denne og de efterfølgende podcast vil jeg være værd ved en række samtaler med eksperter inden for life science-industrien om højaktuelle emner, som ikke kun optager mig, men rigtig mange andre af jer derude, som jeg har til ansvar for at sikre, at I er i compliance. Og i sidste ende sikre, at vi har den højst tænkelige patientsikkerhed. I dag har jeg fornøjelsen af at have besøg af John Lee fra Las Vegas, USA. John er en af verdens førende eksperter inden for GMP, som er forkortelsen for Good Manufacturing Practice, eller bare på dansk, god fremstillingspraksis. Welcome to you, John. Thank you very much. Vi sidder hen i Dansk Industri i København med udsigt over rådspladsen, hvilket er en perfekt ramme for en samtale om life science-industrien. I've invited John Lee, who is a former FDA investigator in the U.S. Food and Drug Administration uh, in the U.S., where you've been uh, working from 77 to 83. And uh, after that, you've been working in the pharmaceutical industry as a quality assurance manager and compliance manager. And recently, actually within the last more than 20 years, you've been working as uh, an advisor and consultant for uh, pharmaceutical and pharmaceutical companies in uh, Europe and uh, globally. You've been working as a former FDA inspector and have since your career uh, at the FDA worked with extensive GMP auditing and consultation assignments in active pharmaceutical ingredients, API, and finished pharmaceuticals, with specialization in FDA pre-approval inspections or PAI audits. This concerns regions and countries like uh, US, Japan, EU, and Denmark. But as for starters, it might be valuable to maybe elaborate a bit more on GMP, good manufacturing practice. How do you actually define it uh, seen from your perspective and uh, why is this actually important? What, what, what makes GMP so important? The main reason why the good manufacturing practice GMP are important is because of the law, not the FDA. So when our Congress passed the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act, they stated in the law, in Section 501A2B of the law, that when a company does not manufacture their product, and this includes food, drug, cosmetics, as well as medical devices, that when a company does not manufacture their product in accordance with the good manufacturing practice regulations, their product is automatically considered to be adulterated under the definition of that law. Adulterated basically means it is unfit for use, it is contaminated, and you are not allowed to use it. So that's why the FDA is so powerful, and that's why we have to comply with good manufacturing practice, because it is not just a set of regulations to ensure the quality of the product that we're making, but it is the law that could cause us to lose our product because of this section in the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Okay. So validation is, uh, you could say, is actually a check for it's fit for intended use. Well, validation is part of the GMP requirement. So therefore, when you do not validate or when you do not validate properly, then your product is considered adulterated because you have uh, not complied with or you have violated that section of the GMP requirement for validation. But validation is pretty much a simple concept. Okay? Validation is basically prove it does what it is supposed to do. Okay? That's what, that, that's, that is what the responsibility is. Yes. You have been doing a lot of pre-approving audits in many regions and countries uh, during the last years, or actually many years. 
and you have a very extensive track record within the area. When you do these kind of uh, uh, audits and consultancy assignments, uh, do you pick up the same issues in your uh, assignments, in your audits, uh, cross-country regions, or do we see any differences? No, I don't really see much of a difference. The difference is mostly in the GMP part. So first, let's do a quick review of the FDA's program for pre-approval inspection. So the FDA's revised program, the compliance program on pre-approval inspection, includes three objectives. Okay, Objective number one, are you ready? Is the company ready for this marketed product? Objective number two is they are going to look for data integrity. All the information that you had submit that you have submitted to the FDA, are they reliable? And number three, the third objective is whether or not a company is fulfilling its commitment that w- that has been made in the submission to the FDA. Basically, are you conforming to your new drug application? commitment, the promises that you've made. So when I perform an audit, I need to cover all three areas because I don't know what the individual FDA investigator is going to cover. So I need to prepare the company for conformance in all three areas. So GMP, yes, we see different GMP compliance in different regions and different areas. Um, so that 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 that's uh, you know that's very broad, okay, to discuss. Um, in terms of data integrity, we know that's a hard issue. We'll, we can talk a little bit more about that uh, later on. But the area that I find a lot of discrepancy in, or the one that I find most discrepancy in, is the area on conformance to the application. Okay? Now, I have to admit that I have not seen any FDA action. Okay? In fact, I don't even see a lot of FDA coverage uh, of uh, conformance to application when they perform a PAI. They're supposed to, according to the compliance program, but apparently most of the FDA investigators are focusing primarily on GMP compliance and data integrity. But the area that I find to be common, whether it is in Japan or in the US or in Europe, is that when I do the audit and prepare them, I review what you have submitted or what you are about to submit to the FDA, and I compare that to your actual practice. And I always find some discrepancies. Okay? Some of them are major, some of them are relatively minor. So that's the uh, one area that is fairly common that I find deficiencies in. All right. But speaking about validation, uh, can you give a brief update on recent developments, say within the last two to three years? Yes, in the area of validation, not much have been going on in that area. Okay? So just uh, a little bit of the statistics on validation in terms of FDA warning letters, for example. Uh, typically, every year, validation typically ranks number three, in, uh, usually ranks number two or number three in, uh, in deficiencies in warning letters related to validation. Uh, last year actually came in, I think, number five in the warning letter uh, in the warning letter category, and typically the number one deficiency in validation is process validation. Okay? Number two used to be uh, sterilization validation, and within that it is mostly aseptic processing, not the terminal sterilization. And then after that, we typically see analytical methods validation, and then cleaning validation. 
Computer validation, usually there are very, very few, if any, warning letter citations on computer validation. Okay? So typically, the main concern, uh, the main deficiency observed by the FDA on validation is primarily either deficiencies in process validation or deficiencies in sterilization validation. Okay? Uh, the, um, the most recent development, if you will, in the area of validation is the FDA's finalization on the guideline for the validation of analytical methods. Now, this guideline has been in draft for 15 years, okay? so they finally finalized it. It took them 15 years to finalize it. Nothing really new in there, nothing really new in there, except that the FDA has borrowed um, two very important concepts from process validation and applied it also to analytical methods validation. So these are sort of new. So what, a little bit of the history. The F, when the FDA revised the process validation guideline in January of 2011, they require stage three, which is called the life cycle approach, which means after you have done extensive testing and extensive sampling, you cannot consider your process validated until you start trending your commercial batches, okay? So that is the life cycle approach, stage three. Well, the FDA has also uh, imported that into the methods validation guideline. So for methods validation guideline, there is a requirement now to also include the life cycle approach, trending your analytical method, trending the results of your analytical method on commercial batches to see whether or not there is a bad trend, meaning are you getting variable results, are you getting high results, low results, and so forth. The other requirement, the sort of new that they have incorporated into methods validation is the one on statistics. So the January 2011 guideline on process validation require a lot of statistical evaluation of validation data. You can no longer just look at the results and say they look good or they are very comparable or they are, they are very, very tight. No, you must use statistics to evaluate the variability of the test results and so forth. So there, are actually, there were actually six references to the use of statistics when you perform a process validation. Well, the FDA has imported that one for the methods validation guideline as well, that you must use statistics to evaluate your methods validation result. Okay? I find a problem in that area during my audits in that companies, they do use statistics sometimes to evaluate the results they get on methods validation, except that sometimes the statistical model might be too extensive, okay? might be uh, too complicated, because they have, I have seen many instances where if you just take a look at the result, you can confirm that, wow, they are very good, they are very tight. But then when you apply the statistical model, you fail. The statistics says, no, they are not comparable. No, they are not tight, tight enough. There's variability. So that is a problem area that I still see from time to time in companies when they use, use these, what I call, heavy-duty, sophisticated statistical models. So maybe that's an area that we, industry, need to go back and examine and say, do we really need these high-level statistical models, or can a simple CV do the job?
So that's um, that's what's been going on in the area of uh, of validation. Um, not 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 many issues in the area of um, computer validation. Like I said, that's usually low on the list. Now, last year in 2016, process validation was the number one deficiency in warning letter. The second one was cleaning validation, which was sort of a surprise for me because cleaning validation had been relatively low on the list, okay, ranking number four, number five, but last year it jumped back up to number two. Okay? So those are the areas that we need to focus on. And obviously sterilization validation and analytical methods validation, you know, they came in like three and four. So those are still the top issues on validation. Statistics and trending, and we just briefly discussed what is actually going on when you talk about validation uh, within recent years. When you look into warning letters and avoid the freeze, uh, what is uh, what do you see as the main topics uh, coming up? Well, what we have seen there, just uh, for example, the warning letters that were have been issued in 2017, and we're still gathering them because the uh, fiscal year has just ended in, uh, in in September 30. So. We're still waiting for the FDA to make late posting sometimes of warning letters. But based on what has been posted so far on the FDA's website, 2016 has not been a good year, okay? Because compared to 2015, there were 62 warning letters were issued to pharmaceutical companies in 2016, which represented over 50% increase in the number of warning letters compared to the year before, which is 2015. So, don't know. I don't know what happened last year. Is the FDA getting more enforcement-minded or whatever? Okay, so I have I have no idea as to why there was such a significant increase, over fifty percent increase in the issuance of warning letters in the industry. But on the brighter side, okay, uh, there were only about a little bit over ten percent of the warning letters were issued to what I call major pharmaceutical companies. Okay, the brand name companies and a large companies, okay? compared to the two years before, where there were about 25% of the warning letters were issued to these major companies. So maybe 2016, the FDA started focusing on maybe some smaller companies, and we would sometimes expect that the smaller companies may not be as well aware of the GMP requirements and FDA expectations, and maybe that is a result of why there's an increase in warning letter uh, targeting the smaller, uh, the, the smaller companies. Okay. So in terms of um, what are the major issues, we mentioned validation. Okay. Uh, last year, of course, the number one reason for warning, number one citation in FDA warning letter was obviously data integrity. Okay. So it has been three, four years in a row now, uh, actually three years in a row, that that, that has been number one okay, in, in, uh, in the warning letter issue. But again, on the brighter side, it has decreased. Okay. So in 2016, only about uh, 30, I think it was about 32% of the warning letters issue had citations regarding data integrity. Whereas the year before, the year before, uh, we had over, I'm sorry, uh, 2017, okay, the fiscal year that just ended, 2017, only about 32% of the warning letters had citation on data integrity compared to 2016, where over 40% of the warning letters has citation on data integrity. And the worst year was 2015. 
2015, 70% of the warning letters has citations on data integrity. So maybe this is a good sign for us that maybe in, uh, in the industry, we're slowly, but we are turning around the, uh, the, uh, turning around the compliance on data integrity. It went from a high of 70 down to 40, and now we're down to 30. So that might be a good sign uh, for us. What was surprising uh, in uh, 2016 was that laboratory controls came in as the second most frequent citation because typically it is always investigation, validation, and QA oversight. They're always one, two, three. And then data integrity took over number one, so everything got pushed back. But in 2016 was data integrity followed by laboratory control and then investigations Okay, an uh, investigation followed that, followed by QA oversight, and then validation. So I don't know whether or not that's just a one-time thing with the laboratory control or not. Okay. Uh, and by laboratory control, what were the major, major issues regarding laboratory control? Failure to test. Company did not test in-process material. Company did not test finished product, or they did not do complete testing. Okay. That was the most frequently cited. The second most frequently cited was lack of control or inadequate control on laboratory chemicals, laboratory reagents, laboratory reference standards, and in a microbiology lab, microbiological media. Basically, quote, raw materials for the lab, that we don't have enough control uh, over those, those items. And surprisingly, when I take a look at the warning letters issued to foreign companies, lab the failure or the inadequate laboratory control actually was number one. It beat out data integrity. Data integrity was actually number, the second most frequent cited, and the, but the most frequent was laboratory control. So we have to wait and see whether or not this is just an isolated issue last year in 2016 and, and see what, or whether or not this could be a trend when we start trending the warning letter citation for 2017. Speaking about what we see as, a, as an issue, even though that uh, the percentage has been decreasing over the recent years, so can we elaborate a bit on data integrity? Why is it that companies uh, compromise uh, compliance with data integrity? No, I don't think the uh, companies, uh, well, I don't think the industry is compromising that because as, as you see from the warning letter, it, they, the data integrity issues of pretty much limited to Chinese companies and Indian companies. Okay? Of course, there are you know, some, a few European companies, a U.S. company, and so forth. And uh, last year, there were two Japanese companies uh, that got cited for data integrity. So uh, as I um, mentioned the last time that we had this, uh, the, the, the opportunity for this interview, I mentioned that it is not that we are falsifying more data or that we are generating more re unreliable data. It has to do with the fact that the FDA has expanded the scope of data integrity, that if you don't document at the time of performance, it is a data integrity issue, whereas in the past, it was just a relatively minor poor documentation practice issue. Okay? But I'm glad to see that it has been, uh, it, it has been going down. Uh, what, what, I, what I see in the data in integrity area is that within the data integrity, the uh, the citations that we see from the FDA, the number one citation on data integrity is still computer control. Lack of inadequate 
computer control. Everyone has access. You're still using a common password, okay? So that's the top one. Second one uh, is deleting data, okay? Deleting data, replacing data, you know, uh, uh, not, not documenting the reason for uh, transcribing data and so forth, okay? So that's the second most frequent. Uh, the third one was failure to document at the time of performance, non-contemporaneous recording. And the fourth one was audit trail, okay? Lack of an audit trail or inadequate audit trail. So those are the major issues from 2016 on data integrity. Uh, the recent audits that I have done on, uh, and of course I cover data integrity in the laboratory and so forth, in the past, when the FDA started enforcing the state integrity and when computer security was a major issue, I used to get hear these excuses from company that, well, we don't have the proper software. The software cannot assign individual password. This software cannot create an order trail and so forth. So we were saying that it wasn't practical to comply with these requirements. But the recent audits I have done, I find that companies are able and have been successful to comply with these requirements, that our IT department were able to put in adequate computer control, that everyone has his or her own password that would only allow him or her to look at his or her own file and maybe make modification to his or her own file. And as far as audit trail, it is very complete. Okay, we were, I have seen audit trail. Now, there is one slight deficiency that I find here and there on audit trail is that some of the computer system is still not able to document the reason. So they document time stamping, date, time, who did what, but we're still lacking why. What was the reason? Why did this person modify? Why did this person delete? Okay. So that's an area that we still need to, uh, need to work on. Now, the update on the uh, MHRA side, they, have the, they issued a guideline in 2015, and they were supposed to revise the guideline. It was supposed to come out you know, soon, and the latest update was that it was, they were estimating maybe September of this year, but of course, that has passed already. But if you go into the MHRA's website on their bulletin, they did also confirm what I have been seeing out in industry, and that is that the industry has been very, very responsive to this data integrity issue and are fixing a lot of problems. So maybe that is reflected in the 32%, um, in, in the decrease down to 32% that we saw in 2016. could uh, go to another topic that also related to validation because uh, before you actually start your validation you also need to do some risk assessments and for many years we've discussed uh, the risk-based approach uh, what is your opinion about the, the risk-based approach so what is it that you see out there yeah the risk-based approach obviously is a is a very good tool okay? it's a very good tool okay? uh, to use what I see out there is that companies are still not properly applying the risk-based approach. What I see out there is that many companies are using the risk-based approach to justify not having to perform something or perform a task that is required by the GMP. And that's why I see the risk. Okay? 
because the proper use of the risk-based approach, as I understand it, is you use the risk-based approach to identify potential risk so that we can take preventive action to prevent that from happening, or we use the risk-based approach to identify potential risk to help us enhance the quality of a product and so forth. But in real life, what I see most times that the company is using risk-based approach to justify why we don't need to test this, why we don't need to take this sample, why we don't need to perform uh, th that analysis and so forth. So that is a uh, problem area that I've been seen in many, many companies. So I see risk-based approach used a lot in equipment qualification, okay, especially in uh, both the installation qualification and operation qualification. And people would use that to say that we don't need to qualify this function and we don't need to qualify this design specification. But if it is part of your design specification, GMP compliance require you, requires you to confirm that you have met that design specification. So that's an area that I'm still uh, having problems with my clients trying to explain to them that you cannot use the risk-based approach to violate the GMPs. Okay? So my advice to them and, and to uh, other people is that, all right, when you perform a risk-based approach or when you perform a risk assessment, please make sure you also perform a GMP compliance risk. What is the risk in terms of GMP compliance, even though there is no risk to product quality impact? So that was uh, your opinion on the, on the concept. Uh, and also partly about the risk assessment. Uh, the, the feedback has been that uh, this risk-based approach is used for, as you say yourself, uh, to direct resources into what is, what is seen at or, or what is actually, actually assessed as being critical. Uh, but what you say is that uh, this doesn't actually mean that you don't have to do any proper testing, uh, even though that it's not uh, rated as critical. That's correct, yes, because if, if, uh, if a certain task is required by the GMP, if a certain test is required by the GMP, you cannot use a risk-based approach to justify not performing that okay, or not performing the requirements for that. So that's what I mean when I say companies should also do a compliance risk, that if we decide not to do this, then what is the compliance risk? Are we looking at a minor 43 observation from the FDA? Or could we be facing a warning letter citation? Or maybe even worse than that, could we be looking at a product recall if we do not perform this test, if we do not perform that task? So that is an area that I think is still weak. And uh, that is an area that I need senior management to pay, pay more attention to, to direct their people and make sure that they are using the risk assessment or the risk-based approach properly. I've seen companies that has been doing a, a, what they call an impact assessment. Uh, when they start up a, a potential validation assignment, what they do as uh, one of the first steps is that they make an impact assessment. Is this uh, impact or no impact? If the process or equipment is it impact or no impact, and if it's actually no impact, uh, then you don't have to do proper risk assessment. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you see that? That's pretty much a, that's pretty much the same. Okay, direct product impact. We 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 have seen those terminology on that. Okay, this has direct product impact. This has indirect product impact, or this has no impact. But again, it's a good model. 
but you cannot use that to justify not having to do something just because it has no impact on the quality of the product. Okay, it, as I said before, it might it might have no impact on product quality and product safety, but it might have an adverse impact on GMP compliance, and that's the one that we are not evaluating or not including as part of our e evaluation. Speaking about equipment qualification and, and talking about uh, in, in, in this matter, talking about design specifications. Design qualification uh, is a separate issue. So I know that you you think that we here in Denmark eventually do it a bit different and you actually recommend that we do it too early, so to speak, that we eventually have the benefit of postponing it a bit. I don't know if that uh, if that's the case here, but uh, the problem I find with design specification, okay, the DQ, is that companies are, are not doing it. Okay, there's no formal, or they do it, but there's no formal system on doing it. So according to actually European Annex 15 requirement, you're supposed to have documentation for the DQ, okay, for the design qualification. But uh, again, like I said, I, I, I think we, we industry-wide, still have a problem figuring out what is design specification. Eh? And this is also another area that I always find to be confusing. To me, design specification is to show that your design specifications, approved design specific, uh, specification, and your approved functional specifications meet the user requirement. That's all it is, okay? That's why I, I that, that, that's my interpretation. Okay. But uh, sometimes I go to the company and their user requirement is actually the design specification and functional spec. So what are you gonna compare uh, against? So I think maybe we need to go back and maybe re-clarify the difference between a user requirement and specifications. Okay. User requirements should be very general, such as, I want a piece of equipment that does not rust. That's a user requirement. Okay. And then you, from there, you develop your design specification. And design specification in this case would be that the equipment must be made out of 316 low carbon stainless steel electrical polish. Okay. And the design uh, the qualification, the DQ, would be merely to review the design spec and make sure that that design spec would meet the user requirement. So I think the complication there is that our many companies, our user requirement is too specific. And in actuality, the user requirement is the design spec. So what are you going to compare against? Because there is no user requirement to compare uh, against. So maybe that's why we, we don't have a formal design specification the way it was intended by EU Annex 15 and also by the GMP for API, active pharmaceutical in ingredients. Speaking about design qualification, John, uh, I know that something is actually going on when it comes to combination products. Yes, that, that's very interesting. So I'd like to add uh, an, an, another comment to the importance of design qualification. Okay, I explained the deficiencies and uh, I like to stress the importance of it. So the FDA finalized a guideline on common, or they issued a guideline on combination product in January of this year. And for all of our, all of the companies that make combination product, you can follow the drug GMP and follow some of the medical device GMP or the other way around. 
So if you choose to follow the drug GMP, which most pharmaceutical companies are going to do, then they have to follow some part of the medical device GMP. Uh, I won't go through all of them, but the two specific ones that are very important is, number one, design control for the medical device, and number two, management responsibility. Okay. So I explained earlier, or I expressed my concern about the level of the design qualification and the way that we're doing it or not doing it properly. Well, we need to get a better understanding of that, not just to conform with the requirement for DQ, for equipment, but also in order to apply it to design control for the medical device. So what are the requirements, very briefly? The requirement for design control for medical device includes the, um, <laughs> I forget, the, yeah, the requirement for design control for medical device requires design input, design output, and design review, okay? And then after that, you have uh, design verification and design validation, which we're not gonna get into there, okay? So design input, if you read the regulation, medical device regulation, is very similar to user requirements, okay? User requirements for a piece of equipment, except the design input is for a device, for a syringe, for example, okay? And then design output is very similar to design specifications and functional specifications, okay? So you're basically saying, what do I want the syringe to do? I want the syringe to deliver an accurate quantity, okay? So that would be the same as user requirement. What do you want it to do? And then design output would be, well, how are you gonna design it to do that? Well, I'm gonna make sure that the barrel is of this length, of that size, of that shape, that color, or whatever. So that's very similar to design specification and functional specification. And then you need to do a design review. Design reviews is almost the same as a DQ, design qualification. Now you need to review the design output to make sure that it fulfills the design input, which is the same as a design qualification to review the functional and design specs to make sure it, it fulfills the user requirements. So for companies that make combination product, it is more important for them to get a good understanding of design qualification so that they can also apply this or it facilitates the application of this to the medical device requirement on design control. The second requirement that we need to pay attention to, companies that make combination product, is management responsibility. In the drug GMP, there is no requirement or regulation or suggestion as to the level of executive management involvement into the day-to-day -day operation of a pharmaceutical company. The FDA, of course, expects senior management to be involved and have the authority and so forth. And of course, they are responsible, but it doesn't outline what they have to do. The medical device GMP on management responsibility is very specific that the executive management is responsible to make sure that people understand the quality requirements and that they follow the quality requirements and they must frequently reinforce that. Of course, they can delegate that to the next level of management. So another area, another message to our senior and executive management in pharmaceutical companies is we need to take a look, we need to review the requirement for the medical device GMP and whether or not and how we are going to fulfill that requirement of management responsibility. 
Speaking about uh, audit trail, uh, I know uh, for a fact that uh, a lot of people are talking about how do we actually know, not how, but I, wh when do we do a proper review of the audit trail as part of the, the approvals for batch release? That is still a problem area in that we don't have a consensus in the industry. We don't have a standard in the industry or recommendation as to what should be included in the review. And as you said, how do we review and what information should we review? So my personal recommendation, I'm sure there are other uh, recommendations out there because there is no standard uh, yet. My recommendation is we need to go back to the root cause. Why does the FDA want us to review the audit trail? Well, they want us to review the audit trail to ensure that the data is reliable. Well, why would the data not be reliable? Well, the data might not be reliable because someone could have changed it. Someone could have deleted something. So based on the root cause as to why the FDA wants us to review audit trail, my recommendation to my client is that you should only have to review audit trail that involves deletion of data and the modification of data. So I would not expect someone to go and review the entire 50 audit trail for someone who went in and created the file and someone who went in and just read it and, and, and locked out. Okay? So we're not concerned about those because those should have no impact on the reliability of data. So to limit the review, because you don't want to sit there and review 50 audit trail to release the batch, I would recommend that we consult with our IT experts to see whether or not they could program the computer to only identify, okay, all the audit trail must be there, but for the review purpose, okay, don't print me out 100 audit trail, but only identify those that involve modification and deletion, and the review should involve the reviewing of those to see whether a certain deletion or whether a certain modification could have affected the reliability of the reportable, uh, of the reported results. So that would be my recommendation on the, on the scope and the extent of the review of the audit trail. So, and you have this popular saying, say, saying that who did what when and why. So and, and this is what you actually need to see in the audit trail. Yes, that is what we actually need to see, okay? Who, we need the initials, okay, or the name. Who, the, actually we need the full name uh, in order to comply with the electronic records regulation, okay? That whenever something is in human readable form, they, it must have the full name, okay? Uh, if it is an electronic signature. Okay? So yes, we need to know who, we need the timestamp, which is the date and time, okay, when, what did that person do? Create, modify, delete, uh, review, or whatever. And of course, the why. Why did you, why did you go in there? Then we go to uh, preparing yourself for uh, an FDA inspection. So how, how do you actually see uh, the companies handle the FDA inspection? Do you have any recommendations, any good advices for preparing? What do you see as, uh, what do you, what do you see as, as issues when these companies are preparing themselves? Yeah, what I see, not issues, but in, in, it's, mo it's mostly the how to handle an, uh, an, an FDA inspection. Now, in the U.S., we have a different strategy because in the U.S., FDA has no time limit. 
they come in and they can stay as long as they want. So in the U.S., our strategy is to get them out as soon as possible, give them what they ask for as soon as possible, and 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 and, and to uh, and to get them out. And in the U.S., the way we handle FDA inspection, of course, is that we provide prompt responses, but only prompt responses to what they ask for. Okay? So what I find different when I go to foreign countries such as Europe and Japan is that I find that companies tend to give lengthy presentations. Okay? Now, nothing wrong with that if the FDA investigator is willing to tolerate it because when they come to Europe or Japan, foreign country for inspection, they have a limited time. They cannot stay as long as they like. So they might cut you off on your presentation uh, because they want more time to do the inspection. So we need to respect that. Another problem I find with these long presentations is that in many cases, the company is actually volunteering a lot of information. Some are useless, okay? some are quite useful to the investigator. For example, and the FDA investigator is not interested in your annual sales. The FDA investigator is not interested in how many plants you have and where they're located. But so this is just uh, information that's not needed. It's just a waste of time. But then on the other hand, I have seen just for example, uh, I have seen a presentation where they listed all of the equipment that we have in this plant. Now you have just given the FDA investigator a checklist of equipment that he or she should audit. Okay? Or another example was when the QA person presented his or her department, they listed all of the responsibility, all the function of our QA department. What you have just done is that you have just given the FDA investigator a reminder or a checklist to make sure they cover deviation, investigations, product annual review program, complaint handling, and so forth. So these um, sometimes these presentations could be harmful to a company in that you're actually volunteering or providing information. Now, besides these presentation in the beginning of the uh, inspection, we also have similar problems when individuals are asked to answer a request from the FDA investigator. Uh, many times I find that uh, when I do mock audits, okay, to pretend to be an FDA investigator, we ask for some records or we ask a question and people would come in with the wrong information. That's not what I asked for, but since you brought it in anyway, I am gonna review it. Okay? Or sometimes they come in and they feel compelled to explain the whole thing to me before giving me the information that I asked for. And when they feel compelled to explain the whole program and the whole system, again, they are volunteering information. They're giving me an audit checklist. They are uh, give, giving me hints on what to cover and so forth. So that's a major difference that I see between how we handle FDA inspections in the U.S. versus how foreign companies handle FDA in, uh, handle FDA inspections. All right. I know that we, uh, in uh, earlier interviews, talked about equipment qualification um, and how actually to prepare oneself for an inspection. And speaking of uh, preparing yourself for inspection, I know that you have some, and you see that we have some difficulties in actually preparing a proper inspection on equipment qualification. Can you elaborate that? Yes, very interesting that you brought that up as an example, because uh, 
When I do audits, okay, whether it's a mock inspection or whether it is a friendly audit, if you will, and I ask to review installation qualification or operation qualification, companies have a lot of difficulty in presenting the information. Okay? I think all I think the main reason is because there's so many documents involved. There are drawings and and, and so forth. Okay? Lots lots and lots of paper. So it makes it difficult for them to identify uh, the things. But there has to be a better way for us to be organized and presented. Okay. So for example, one of the first questions I ask when I audit, let's say, installation qualification is give me a list of the approved design specifications. That's how we audit. We get a list of your design specification, and then we ask to see, did you confirm this design spec? Show me the data. Did you confirm this design spec? Show me the data. You don't know how many times I ask that basic question, show me a list of your approved design specification, and the companies cannot provide it. It is not all in one place. They'll tell me, well, it's in, some of it is in the risk assessment, okay? And some of it is in factory acceptance testing, and some of it is in uh, site acceptance testing. And then we have all these documents with uh, these approved design specs sprinkled all over the place. I think that's one reason why it is difficult for these people to present. It is, I feel it is not well organized, okay? It is not well organized for presentation. It would be nice if we can present and say, okay, investigator, here are the approved design specs, and let me show you. For this design spec, this is how we confirmed it. Here's a protocol, and here are the data, and this is how we wrote the report. Okay, All right, let's try another one. For this design spec, this is the protocol on how we confirmed it. This is the data showing that we have done it, and here's a report confirming the result. So if we can organize it in that way to present, I think it would be much easier, less confusing during an FDA inspection. But luckily for us, we don't see a lot of coverage of equipment qualification uh, by the FDA. I rarely see 483 observations or warning letter citations on equipment qualification. But uh, the example you use, yes, that is an area where I find that we have difficulty organizing for presentation, effective presentation, during an FDA inspection. Yeah. Thank you for joining this interview in Copenhagen, John. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to uh, provide an update to, uh, to, to, to this Canal Talk. And I look forward to having the opportunity again next time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tak fordi du lyttede til denne første podcast i en række, som alle har til formål at stille skarp på relevante og højaktuelle emner inden for GMP. Mit navn er Henrik Johanning fra Genau Mor. Jeg har været jeres værd i denne samtale med ekspert John Lee fra Las Vegas, USA. Hvis du har lyst til at se denne Genau Talks podcast som video, eller hvis du har lyst til at se andre Genau Talks emner blive debatteret, er du velkommen til at kigge forbi på vores hjemmeside på genauenmor.com.